The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. You're listening to Paradigm Shift. I'm Jill Shee. On this program, we take an in-depth look at some of the most contentious topics facing society today. You'll hear meaningful discussion and debate from Orange County residents and professionals. Join us as we seek to promote an informed citizenship through a straightforward, nonpartisan format. This is KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. Hello, everyone. Today's the last day in June. It's Tuesday, June 30th. You're listening to Paradigm Shift, a show that tackles major nationwide topics and adds an Orange County slant. Today's discussion is gun control. And to aid in this national debate topic, we will be speaking with Republican advocate Charlie Bleck, who is the president of the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. We also have UCI Professor Elliot Curry joining us today. Professor Curry specializes in criminology, law, and society, and he'll be adding his viewpoint on this issue. Now, gun control legislation is in the headlines after the tragic shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, that left nine people dead. In addition to focusing attention on the nation's gun laws, this mass shooting incident, which occurred earlier this month, has also prompted the removal of the Confederate flag in some areas. Increasing acts of racial tension and murder with guns are leading some people to believe that America is now a culture of violence. The question today, however, is whether or not the accessibility of guns in this country is to blame for so many mass shootings. Last week, President Barack Obama spoke at the funeral services for Reverend Pinckney, who is one of the nine victims of the deadly Charleston shooting. In his speech, President Obama called on supporters to back gun control. For too long, we've been blind to the unique mayhem that gun violence inflicts upon this nation. Sporadically, our eyes are open when eight of our brothers and sisters are cut down in a a church basement, 12 in a movie theater, 26 in an elementary school. But I hope we also see the 30 precious lives cut short by gun violence in this country every single day. You're tuned into KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. On today's paradigm shift, we are discussing the gun control debate. We turn now to news from California, where lawmakers are taking a serious look at the state's concealed carry regulations. Just last year, a federal appeals court said the rules on concealed weapons are too tough, prompting Orange County Sheriff Coroner Sandra Hutchins to relax the policy. This allowed people to get a permit without a specific reason, and thousands of people applied for gun permits in Orange County last year. Since that decision, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals met back in March this year and erased its ruling. Sheriff Sarah Hudgens has now reverted back to a good cause policy requiring people who want to carry a gun prove they have a good reason to do so. It's a little bit of a back and forth here. We did try to reach out to Sheriff Sarah Hudgens' office, but was informed she was unavailable for comment. Um, So recently, 
two weeks ago, in fact, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals met in San Francisco to discuss whether they would uphold the current concealed carry regulations. Under the current California law, citizens must be of good moral character and have good cause to obtain a gun permit. The law allows individual counties, through their sheriffs, to set the policy on what good cause is. As of now, there is no deadline on the court's decision. People on both sides of this issue feel the U.S. Supreme Court should decide. For now, let's go to a phone interview from Charlie Bleck and hear his thoughts on this issue. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Paradigm Shift. Today we're talking about gun control laws, and uh, on the phone we have Charles Bleck, Jr. He's an estate planning lawyer in Laguna Hills. He's been president of the Orange County Chapter of Advocacy Group, the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. And him and his wife, Mary Lay, founded the Orange County Citizens for the Prevention of Gun Violence in 1995. Welcome, Charles. Good afternoon. Uh, Sir, I just want to uh, maybe start uh, by asking how you got involved with this this issue. In the worst possible way that a parent can be involved, we received a telephone call at 3 a.m. from a New York detective with four short sentences. Your son was the victim of a robbery. He did not offer resistance. He was shot. He is deceased. Matthew was an honor student in college. He went to New York City between his junior and senior year. He had a wonderful job there. He was enjoying the Big Apple. He would call us every Sunday night with his excitement. He would always sign off by saying, love you lots. And it was uh, just a really devastating blow to my wife and I. Really sorry to hear. Um, And so since then, you have been... We have been advocates for responsible gun laws. Uh, Our philosophy is that we need to keep dangerous weapons out of dangerous hands. Okay. And I'm a little annoyed with the fourth estate because they keep introducing this as a gun control issue. And um, as an Orange County, and I'm not interested in control. I'm interested in responsible policy. And we take a public health approach so that it not only deals with the homicides, but it deals with unintentional shootings, it deals with suicide. Overall, we want to just prevent gun violence, whatever form it takes. Okay. So just to clarify, um, the term gun control, is it, is it too um, limiting then? It's an adversarial where we don't believe, once you listen to what we have to say, that it's not an adversarial. I don't believe anybody likes to be controlled. And... Uh, it puts us in a very negative light to start with. So, uh, And it's not you personally. I'm not picking on you. This is 20 years' worth of frustration in dealing with this issue, and my wife and I will deal with it till the day we die. So, But, but the important thing is that it just limits the discussion, and, and we take a public health approach. We can talk about a major issue in Orange County, which is suicide, which is the elephant in the room that nobody likes to discuss. We can take the approach of unintentional, uh, because it's not accidental, it's unintentional. And then we can go over to the criminal side and and the side where my son was involved. And um, my wife is a former um, school nurse. She understands prevention. She understands the public health model. And that's what we try to do. So that's where we're coming from. Okay. And you mentioned years of 
uh, working on this, and um, I would like to ask what types of progress have you seen? Uh, well, we're very pleased with California. In the last 20 years, California's gun mortality rate has decreased almost 60%, which is approximately 25% greater than the national average. So prevention works, and we're very pleased with that. We've seen some major, major uh, issues and policies passed in California back as early as 1999. Uh, we had, we passed a law dealing with safety standards. Would you believe that there is no national consumer product board that will control guns, even though it's the only consumer product that is designed to maim and to kill? California, we were able to pass that in 1999, which effectively put Saturday night special manufacturers out of business. We've gone forward and we've banned assault weapons. We've gone forward and we have taken something called micro-stamping, which at crime scenes, when there's nothing but shells left, uh, we can now, if ones and gun manufacturers get on board, have an imprint on the uh, bullet, so on the casing, so that we can identify the purchaser and the type of uh, weapon. And more importantly, just unfortunate incident that just happened last year, at uh, UC Santa Barbara, we were able to pass a state law that would have prevented that horrible shooting and six people would be alive. It's called the Gun Violence Restraining Order Bill. It will be effective January 1 of 2016. And what it does is when a parent or law enforcement is aware of the fact that an individual can do harm, is in crisis, can do harm to himself or to others, does not have to be adjudicated as mentally ill. That bar was too high. Just do harm. We have a process now where they can appeal to the court. We have due process. The court will issue a restraining order where the law enforcement can go out with a search warrant, remove the guns from the possession of that person and from the premises, and we can get the counseling that person needs so we can get them past that crisis moment. If we had had that in force, Six people would still be alive at UC Santa Barbara, and 13 others would not be wounded. Uh, we are making progress, but unfortunately, Jill, it's a marathon and not a sprint. But we're in it for the long term, and we do see results. That's a lot of positive right there. And um, just on the opposite end there, I, I'm sure you know this. Last year uh, in Orange County, a federal appeals court ruled it unconstitutional for uh, the department to require more justification for a permit beyond self-defense, and um, in the OC register, a story broke that thousands of Orange County residents were then applying for concealed weapons. We have been extremely unhappy with Sheriff Hutchins. <laughs> uh, it was a case out of San Diego, and it was a two-to-one decision, uh, Peruta versus the uh, Sheriff of San Diego, and, quite, and to bring you up to date, that decision was vacated, and just the 16th of this month, there was an embank hearing before the full 11 justices of the Ninth Circuit uh, reviewing that case. But when that first came out, the initially that court stayed that decision, Jill. Mm -hmm. And a stay means that it's in limbo, and when a decision is stayed, then you go back to what the previous law was, which is good cause, a true justification. Our Sheriff Hutchins started out, and she said, well, this now law mandates that I simply issue these uh CCW permits, and we had our national attorneys in Washington, D.C. write her within that first two-week period when the stay became effective, telling her that that was not the law. 
So then she went on and she said, well, this is precedent, and it wasn't because the decision was stayed and now finally vacated. Mm -hmm. And then she has just flip-flopped all around, and yes, she has spent a million and a half of our taxpayer dollars, and I don't know where she got that out of her budget, so she could rush these CCWs through. And my last, like, our last count was maybe eight to 10,000 people who were able to get CCW permits who could just say, well, I need it for self-defense. And now that the decision has been fully vacated, she's gone back to saying, well, now I'm going to go back to my previous standard of just cause. And what do we do with the eight to 10,000 permits she's issued already? I mean, it's been a horrible, horrible situation, and she's handled it so badly. The sheriff of San Diego, who was the defendant in the lawsuit, did not change his procedure. Yet, for some reason, our Orange County sheriff decided she needed to flip-flop around. And quite frankly, Jill, she got compliments from the Board of Supervisors. And this last time around, she ran un unopposed. So, I mean, you just need to connect the dots. Okay. Yeah, and I was just going to ask you why you think there's so much back and forth on this and her returning to her old policy. I don't have any. I, I can't answer for Sheriff Hutchins. Mm -hmm. All I know is put her on notice, and she knows our situation. She knows our position. We are legally correct, and we are extremely disappointed in the way she's handled this. Okay. And so, uh, back, oh, I know I'm kind of referencing some, some older articles, but uh, back in 2012, uh, you were quoted in the OC Register saying uh, Obama's gun policies have either been non-existent or a step backwards in the eyes of safety advocates. Do you still feel that this current administration is not doing its best to tackle, uh, you know, gun? I, I, I understand that the federal Congress at this point is so deeply in the grasp of the National Rifle Association that uh, politically it would have been extremely difficult, but that doesn't mean he could not have used his bully pulpit. I am pleased within the last year or so that he did come forward, and one of the executive decrees, one of the most important ones out of the 23 that he put forward, was the fact that he wanted funding for the CDC, the Center on Disease Control, to go back and start doing some more surveys and research and background work on gun violence and gun deaths, you see, what happened back in 96 was that the Republicans in the Congress and who handled the Appropriations Committee just carved up the budget for the CDC, and since then we have had a scarcity of uh, statistics. And I have to give my quote. I mean, the NRA has done a good job. They saw what happened to the cigarette industry and secondhand smoke, and they didn't want to get caught in that trap, so they basically created a situation where they wanted to have a dearth of statistics. Now that we're starting to get the statistics out again, it shows that prevention works. And uh, now I am pleased, and unfortunately it took horrible nine deaths in, in, um, in South Carolina to, uh, to prompt him to come forward and say that, that um, we just simply, our country, for its economic prowess, we don't have, I mean, other countries that have the same economic prowess and status, they don't have these mass shootings or these 30,000 gun deaths every year. And, and this is ridiculous that we have to endure it. And I'm pleased that at least now he's speaking out on it. Uh, so, uh, yes, in 2012, I was extremely disappointed because I think his first term, he did absolutely nothing to promote responsible gun policies. So I'll stand by that quote in 2012, but
but I'm also pleased that he's moving forward and trying to make the public aware of what's going on. For example, Jill, it's a shame. 90%, 90% of the American public wanted universal background checks, just like we have in California, which has not prohibited gun sales at all. 80% of the NRA membership wanted it, and yet John Boehner would not bring that bill to the floor of the House to be even discussed, debated, or voted on. That type of grip by a, by a um, lobbyist group is just plain wrong. Mm-hmm. Fortunately now, though, we're going to go forward and have the research, have the funding for the CDC, and I think you're going to see the same type of statistics that are come forward that happened with the cigarette industry, and people are going to become much more aware. Okay. And uh, you did reference the uh, killing of nine people at the, the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And I wanted to ask, um, do you think this is the tragic event that will lead to new gun control laws? I mean, we've seen so many of these. You know, you know, I have been involved. I was involved way back in Columbine. My wife and I were keynote speakers at the steps of the Denver, in Denver at the state capitol when we had a huge rally there uh, in 98. Uh, I was involved when we had that horrific shooting in Colorado at the theater. Um, like the president said, when you can have 20 first graders and six adults slaughtered in Newtown, Connecticut, and that still doesn't move anybody to step forward. Uh, you know, I'm hopeful, but uh, history tells me that we simply have to become more educated, and the folks in the middle the folks out in the, the suburban moms, the, the soccer moms, they have to become aware of the fact that they're not immune. My wife and I lived in a gated, guarded community in South Orange County. I thought when I handed over the keys to the cars to our kids that that was the most difficult and dangerous thing. And, you know, Jill, I not only was wrong, I was dead wrong. Our kids travel, they're mobile, they go to different events, they go to concerts, etc. We have that gun prevalent in our society everywhere. We need to be aware. We need to step forward, and we finally need to do something about it. Enough is enough, and any event like this is tragic. Um, I was thinking um, the Santa Barbara shooting. At least that triggered the ability for our state legislature to come forward with this gun violence restraining order, which will remove the gun from the dangerous person. I mean, we can always return the gun but we can't return life to those people who are dead. Right, I understand. Um, and now the, the question about, uh, I w- would like to get your resp- response to opponents for gun control laws who say that guns aren't the problem, it is the bad people who do bad things. Gun laws don't work. Yeah, they work. say guns, guns, guns don't kill, people kill is what their mantra is. Mm-hmm. But you know what, Bill? The real truth is people with guns kill. And when I was growing up, a fist fight was just a fist fight. Today, that fist fight is a gun death, and that's just not right. Okay. And so what ideas do you have, uh, then, to fix this? I mean, I, I want to go back to something you said in the beginning. You, you're not wanting to couch it as a, a gun control issue. It's more the response, the responsibility of gun handling. So what, what does that mean, and what, do you, what it ideas? Means that, it means that we can also take and we can have progress in the area of suicide, unintentional. Uh, we can we passed laws in California dealing with a chamber load indicator, 
basically, people don't understand that they can take the magazine out and there's still a live bullet in the chamber. I would love to see us go forward. The young people get it, Jill. We have the fingerprint for iPhones. We have the fingerprint for uh, computers. I would love to see uh, we have gun locks. I would love to see us have smart guns. Um, we have the technology. There was a, um, a manufacturer in Europe that actually created a gun. And the bottom line is, if a gun were stolen, and, the, and it was stolen, but it was a smart gun, it could only be operated by the person who legally purchased it, it would make that gun a useless piece of metal. We are developing technology. We simply have to educate the public to that technology, and our gun death rate is going to plummet. Okay. So what are some of the obstacles hindering um, your advocacy here or, or movement? Oh, it's real simple. If I, had the, if I had the budget that the National Rifle Association has, I understand their budget is more than $100 million a year. I could do some real educating also, Jill. <laughs> okay. And then my last question is, do you think this will be a this continued topic of debate in the 2016 presidential election? I absolutely do. I was... Tickle Pink, uh, there was a, uh, a um, mayor's conference just this last week, and both President Obama and uh, candidate now, I can't call her Secretary of State Clinton or Senator Clinton, I guess I have to address her as candidate Clinton, both came out and made really strong statements about the need to break the grip of the NRA on our federal Congress, the need to have reasonable, responsible gun laws. Uh, I believe Secretary of State Clinton used the example of the 90% dealing with the universal background checks, and she said if she gets elected, she will fight for these particular issues, and that was a music to my ears. And I would love to hear a Republican come out and tell me why in the world they cannot endorse and support universal background checks. We have it in California. We have closed the gun show loophole Law-abiding citizens still have ample access to guns in California, yet every single Republican state legislator has failed to support any of these particular particular uh, issues and laws, common sense, and they need to stand up and be accountable. We need to ask them questions. We need to educate ourselves. Education is power, and we need to ask them these questions. We need to hold them accountable. Charlie Black, we really appreciate your time here speaking with us. Thank well, you. Thank you for having me. You're our sword, and uh, the more light you can shine on this, the more lives we're going to save. Thank you. Speaking about candidates for the presidential election, this past Saturday, former Republican Governor Jeb Bush told supporters that President Obama's gun control proposals could not stop any of the attacks that have taken place in the last couple years. He said gun control is not even the solution. He believes there should be more of a focus on mental illness and treatment. Meanwhile, Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton made a case for common-sense gun control last Saturday while speaking to her supporters in San Francisco. She asked the crowd, How is it possible that we as a nation allow guns to fall into the hands of people whose hearts are filled with hate? We can have common-sense gun reforms that keep them out of the hands of criminals and the mentally unstable while not penalizing responsible gun owners, Clinton said. 
We did not get someone on today's program who is starkly against gun control, so I want to take some time to list 10 reasons why some gun rights activists may feel that gun control is not the answer. Number 10, there's still murder in countries where handguns are banned. Number 9, limiting assault rifles limits your Second Amendment rights. So if the government restricts types of rifles or limits the amount of rounds, there's no limit to what else they will restrict. Number eight, the Second Amendment is not intended for just ordinary home defense. Its intent was to guarantee the nation could never be overcome by any military power, foreign or domestic. Number seven, armed civilians help take out the bad guys. Number six, shooters will get access to a gun even with strict gun laws in place. Number five, gun rights will protect you from a police state. Four, rampage shooters like soft targets. They're targeting elementary schools, churches, and theaters, not places where you'd think guns are likely to be. Three, prohibition didn't stop alcohol, so gun control won't stop guns. Number two, laws don't apply to criminals. Gun control does not address the issue of gun-related crimes. And the last one, number one, the world isn't perfect and you can't regulate it to perfection. So as you can see, the nation continues to be polarized on the topic of gun control measures. Let's listen to a sociological standpoint on gun violence in America. This is KUCI 88.9 FM. The show is Paradigm Shift. I'm your host, Jill Shee. Today we have Professor Elliot Curry. Uh, he is a professor of criminology, law, and society at uh, UCI. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, sir, can you start by telling our listeners how you got involved in, in researching um, criminology, or more specifically, violence in society? Well, I got interested in this uh really quite a long time ago, along about the time when uh, American crime rates began to go through the roof back in the 1960s, late 1960s, and everybody was deeply concerned about the level of uh, violence in America and looking for some solutions for it. And I thought this was a, a tremendously important issue that showed us a lot about the kind of society we were living in, and a very complicated and difficult issue. And I thought it was one I could sink my teeth in, and I've been working on it ever since. Well, since you're since you've started uh, till now, have you seen uh, what what have you come across that has been injured? Have you seen an increase in violence, or is it you know now we're just seeing more of it because of social media or media outlets? I think it depends on the kind of violence we're talking about. Overall, uh, violent crime in the United States during the decades that I've been studying it has kind of gone up and down. It hasn't been an even trajectory one way or the other. It went up for a while in the late 60s, fell a little bit in the 70s, went up again in the early 80s, and then rose to very high peaks in the late 1980s and early 90s. Then we had what some people call the great American crime decline or crime drop that happened uh, roughly from the early 90s up until the turn of the 21st century. And since then, we've been lower than we were at our worst points, but still very high by comparison with uh, other advanced industrial societies around the world, whether in Europe or Asia or Canada, for that matter. But that's talking about violent crime in general. 
Mm-hmm. I think if you're looking specifically at things like some of the recent uh, mass shootings that have taken place in the United States, like the shooting in uh, in South Carolina recently, I think there is some evidence that those have risen in the last several years in a very troubling way. Okay. And would you say that, um, you know, with, with everybody focusing on it being sort of a, a racially motivated crime, um, a violent crime, would you say that the focus on gun control then is warranted, that that's something we, we definitely need to take a look at? Well, I think we always need to take a look at gun control, not only in the context of this kind of incident, but in the context of American violence generally, because it's uh, our absence of um, significant gun regulations is something that really does set us apart from the, the less violent countries around the world. Um but when you look at an incident like the, the Charleston mass shooting, it's a very complicated mix of things. And certainly gun control, the lack of gun control is one piece of it. So is the whole issue of mental health, particularly the mental health of young people. Um, the racial climate, uh, not just in the South, but throughout the country. All of the above, I think, are things that have to be looked at simultaneously if we want to understand that kind of incident, much less do anything about it. Okay. And when you say uh, the mental health, um, you know, there's there's been a lot of cases where young young adults are are resorting to this form of violence. Um, is this a cry for attention? I mean, where where does this fall in the mental health issue? Well, I think you're right that a great many of the uh, of the most tragic incidents of this kind, uh, from the Charleston shooting through the movie theater shooting in Colorado to the shootings in Tucson, Arizona, and on back, you are seeing a certain kind of offender, a certain kind of shooter. They do tend to be young men. I mean, again, the Newtown, Connecticut shooting of the of the young school children is another example. Uh, young men, uh, very troubled. Uh, young men who are very disconnected from other institutions in the society, disconnected from school, uh, often unemployed, often with a history of, uh, of some kind of mental disturbance. And what you see over and over again is, you know, however you would define the particular mental illness that they suffer from, and I think that's complicated, what's clear is that they, in most cases, didn't get the kind of sustained intervention that they needed. And that's part of the reason why, you know, the outcome was so tragic in these situations. Really something needed to have happened with these guys uh, in a more serious way that never did happen. Right. And so why are they looking to uh, violence as as the answer or, um, you know, the extreme cases of murder? Um, what, what's What's the catalyst for that? I do think that sometimes uh, what you're looking at is a, uh, a very desperate sort of search for a kind of attention, a kind of notoriety. I think that sometimes the level of mental illness goes much deeper, that you're talking about people who are probably uh, suffering from a major psychosis and have convinced themselves uh, or something in their head has convinced them that the the actions that they're taking, the murderous course that they're taking, uh, is something that's uh, that's necessary uh, in order to save the world or to right 
some wrong. Uh, but again, I think there are probably several different paths uh, that would bring an individual into that sort of state of mind. And the more common phenomenon that I think we have to think about is how come they got to that point without somebody deflecting them from that course? Because very often what you see in a number of these shootings is that the signs of trouble, the signs of serious uh, mental difficulty, have, had been there for quite a long time. Uh, and it's just that not enough happened. Right. Yes, and um, I, I want to kind of refer back to something you said earlier. Um, it was just very interesting to me, and it, I've, I've also read articles about it, that other countries don't see the same type of incidences that we do uh, here in America. And so what are, the, what are the factors, what are the reasons why uh, America sees more of these types of incidences? Well, America has more of them, but there is a way in which... Um a number of other societies, I'm afraid, have unfortunately suffered from similar kinds of incidents to these. Uh, the bigger difference between America and other advanced societies when it comes to gun violence uh, lies in the more routine gun violence, you know, gang shootings, uh, shootings related to the drug trade, shootings connected with uh, robberies and other forms of violent crime. That's where we really, really stand out. Okay. I think it is true that we see more of these kinds of mass shootings that are somehow tied to, uh, to a mentally ill offender than you see in other countries. But there still are some. Um, in Australia, for example, some years ago, there was a devastating uh, mass shooting that took the lives of, I think, about 35 people and led to uh, huge changes in the Australian gun laws, because they basically said, hey, we don't want any more of this. Uh, similar shootings in recent years in England and Scotland, in Finland, in Germany. So they do exist. I think we see more of them in part in the United States uh, because of the much greater prevalence of guns. But they're not absent in other societies. Okay. And the first part of what you were sharing about the gang violence and kind of tying that into the, the gun control, um, we can really take a look at our laws and, and limit getting those guns into the hands of, of people and citizens and things like that, but uh, is there, you know, is there that, that black market? I mean, is people still going to be able to get their hands on guns? So are we really... My question to you is, are we really addressing the problem, or the root of the problems, through gun control? You said it in the beginning, it, it's always good to look at it. <coughs> Will it open up a whole new set of issues? I think it would certainly help. I think bringing our gun regulations into something closer to uh, congruence with what most other advanced societies have done would be a help. But I think you're absolutely right that it's not the entire solution, in part because... Again, particularly when you're looking at things like the, the perennial, endemic, sort of deep-rooted uh, street gun violence that we see so much of in the United States, gang-related, drug-related, um, what you're looking at is a kind of violence that's deeply rooted in certain kinds of social conditions, which exist to a greater degree in our country, unfortunately, than in others. Poverty uh, the extreme disconnection of uh, a lot of poor 
young men uh, from any kind of productive role in the society, any kind of legitimate work, a whole range of that kind of deep, deep uh, social disparities, uh, social deficits, is a huge part of why we see such a high level of gun violence in this society. And you're not going to affect that simply by gun control. Even if we were to, you know, establish, which is unfortunately kind of unlikely, even if we were to establish much tougher gun laws, then I think you're absolutely right. You'd see, you'd see the growth of an even larger black market in guns that we have now, as long as there is, you know, that, that deep, deep uh, social uh, frustration, uh, social deprivation that underlies the violence in the first place. Okay. And... Um, I know I'm kind of going all around, but back to South Carolina, you mm-hmm. mentioned this. Uh, cases like this can be linked to mentally ill, potential mentally ill, uh, you know, young adults who may be needing some extra counseling or and all of those things. What are some ways that we can, as a society, help uh, recognize these things? What more can be done? to prevent it going to this extreme? Well, I think uh, getting back to the South Carolina thing again for a moment, let me let me be clear that I don't think that this is just a problem about mental illness. I think you mentioned in the first place uh, mm-hmm. that this is obviously a racial incident. Mm-hmm. It is a hate crime. And I think that... Uh, we're not going to be able to understand the eruption of this kind of violence unless we understand the depth and the the, the really, really uh, pervasive character of racial prejudice still existing in American society at this time. You know, there's a lot of talk about us having become a colorblind society and we have an African-American president and all of this. And this is very true, and I think when it comes to the majority of Americans, there's been a massive change uh, in racial attitudes. But for, particularly for a very, um, a very vehement and angry minority of Americans, racism is still a very virulent, uh, a very very virulent problem. And dealing with that again, is an extremely complicated matter. I don't think it's enough to simply take down the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House, although I'm in favor of doing that. But I think you also have to address the deeper reasons why some people, uh, and again, particularly young people, in certain parts of the country are so drawn to a racist ideology that can, that can erupt in this kind of terrible crime. And then uh, some of the um, the opinion pieces are making comparisons. I mean, uh, to your point about the the racial element here, are making uh, comparisons of how people are reacting to Dylan Roof's uh, actions versus uh, an African American male who would engage in the same same things. So it's still uh, a very contentious issue that. Uh, It still needs to be handled very delicately. Um, But, again, going back to um, the the poverty aspect and, you know, the mentality behind handling conflict with extreme acts of violence, um, I'm just 
like you said, I, I don't think it's, personally, I don't know if it's a, a quick fix, but there are so many layers to the underlying reasons why people would resort to this. And yep. um, again, the opponents of gun control say that it's, it's bad people that are making the choices, not necessarily the guns. Um, but at the same time, having a gun <laughs> increases the chances of these things happening. So it's sort of a circle all the way around, um, chicken or the egg. So yeah. any yeah. other thoughts on your experience or knowledge or background on this? Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right in, in uh, saying that the presence of guns uh, certainly makes it more likely that this kind of anger, this kind of racial hatred, or for that matter, some other kind of um, uh, some kind of mental illness that that is likely to result in some kind of lashing out. This, the fact of the the uh, unregulated presence of guns really increases the possibility that that kind of lashing out is going to be lethal. So I think the problem with the argument that uh, gun control opponents make is not that it's entirely wrong. I mean, I think, sure, they're partly right. They're, they're right in that, A, lots and lots of people, most people who own guns, are never going to use them in a bad way. They may never use them at all. And if they do use them, maybe it's for target shooting, or maybe they like to hunt, but they're never going to use it to kill somebody. Um, and they're also correct that a really bad guy is probably going to be able to get their hands on a gun or some other weapon of destruction, no matter what laws we put in place to control guns. So all of that is true. But what they're not thinking about is just the way in which the risk is so much magnified when there's a flood of guns in our community and everybody can, can get them. Um, and the line between uh, the dangerousness of legal guns and the dangerousness of illegal guns is very, very blurry. If you look at the Newtown massacre in Connecticut, for example, of the very young kids in, in school, uh, you know, this was a legally purchased gun. It belonged to the kid's mother. He took it out of the closet and went to the school and shot a lot of people with it. So as long as you have guns that easily available, then that person who is really pretty crazy it's just that much easier for them to get their hands on it. Okay. And what would you say to the, the average citizen who is claiming that, you know, the society is getting more and more violent, um, I myself need to protect my, myself, my possessions, my, my, my family, um, from a, I guess, a sociological, sociological standpoint, do you do you think that's helping? That kind of mentality is helping, or do you think it's warranted? I can understand why people have it, certainly, uh, because once if you live in a society, even if it's not becoming more violent overall, and again, it's not clear that we are becoming more violent overall, but there's a tremendous amount of insecurity in America about gun violence and about uh, the danger of us law-abiding people being victimized by it. That's completely understandable. But what I would say to somebody who has that feeling is that although I understand it, every bit of evidence we have from every piece of serious research that's ever been done on this issue shows that it's much more dangerous when everybody is armed than when guns are hard to get. 
much more likely to get killed if you have a gun in your own house than if you don't. And it's likely to be your own gun or your own household gun that does the damage. Again and again, this is what the research finds. So while our, our sort of gut feeling might be, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm scared, I'm worried, this seems like a dangerous situation to me, I'm going to run out and buy myself some guns, well, that instinct turns out to be the wrong one if what you're really interested in is the safety of yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. And then my last question, Professor. Um, I, I don't know if it's wise to look back at the past um, nostalgically, but you mentioned that in uh, from the 1990s to the early tw- 21st century, there was a decline in violence all the way around. Um, what, what can be attributed to that? And um, is it something that we can possibly inject into our society now to decrease these, these violent acts? Well, you know, that's a, that's a question that people have been trying to figure out and mostly kind of scratching their heads about it ever since that crime decline began. Um, and I don't think there's any consensus among people who study these things on what exactly caused it. Uh, my own take on it is that a big part of it had to do simply with the fact that it was a it was a falling back from a peak. In other words, there were things that caused this really pretty sudden rise in crime in the late 1980s and into the early 1990s. Some of that had to do with the emergence of the uh, crack cocaine business in our cities, which created a lot of violence that was related to that drug trade. And when that proceeded, so too did the, the gun violence that was related to it. I think also, you know, we had a long uh, period of economic prosperity. We had an economic boom beginning in the 1990s in which a lot of people, including a lot of low-income young people, got pulled into the labor force and got honest jobs. Hugely important thing in terms of whether you have a lot of street-level gun violence, because if people are at work, you know, doesn't really matter where they're working. If they're working at Home Depot, they're working at Taco Bell, they're not going to be out on the street packing a gun. And that made a huge, huge difference. And I myself think that when we look to the future, if we could if we could bottle one thing and sell it as a piece of social policy to to prevent uh, a new increase in the level of, of gun violence, it would be to make sure that everybody, particularly young people who are now sort of marginal to the economy, everybody has a place in that economy and has something useful and legitimate to do. If we do that, we're going to really cut down on the whole problem of gun violence. Thank you for your thoughts, sir. We've been speaking to Professor Elliot Curry, UCI School of Social Ecology. Uh, We really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Just a little background. There are two major federal laws that regulate firearm ownership and sales. The first one is the National Firearms Act of 1934, which restricts civilians from owning automatic weapons, short-barreled shotguns, hand grenades, and other powerful arms. The second one is the Control Act of 1968. It prohibits mail-order sales of weapons and requires anyone in the business of selling guns to be federally licensed and to keep permanent sales records. In addition, There's also the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act of 1993, and that requires licensed gun dealers to perform background checks. But background checks are not required for private gun sales. 
Now, these are just federal laws, and they set the minimum standards, but in addition to this, many states have also passed various types of gun laws, and we uh, discussed that earlier in the show about what's going on in California. Now, while the Charleston shooting has brought the subject of gun control to the forefront again, the question is, will this debate be enough to force Congress to enforce new gun control laws? Or will America continue to remain polarized on this issue? You've been listening to Paradigm Shift. I'm your host, Jill Shee. And as we close out on today's program, I would like to ask where do you stand on America's gun debate? If you have any comments or questions or concerns, please email me at paradigmshift at KUCI.org. In future shows, I'll make it a point to read your thoughts and or take calls from listeners in the last five to ten minutes of this program. Again, thank you for tuning in to KUCI 88.9 FM. Stay right here for Beer Ambassadors with Mike Woodward. Up next.